0: Well, um, thank you again for having me back. It's been lovely. Uh, Just great to be among you. Uh, When I was first given this topic, I was a bit terrified, actually, because I didn't think I knew much about the Trinity. And now I know I don't. But uh, I think there are some wonderful things that we've been able to see in the Scriptures together. So uh, we've been talking about aspects of the Trinity. And today I'd like to talk about the Trinity in the life of the Church. But before I get there, I really do apologize For not being clear enough for some of you. And um, I'm sorry about being so obtuse. Uh, It's not just the accent. I'm not a very clever bunny sometimes. And I assume some things and I'm just not clear. So I do apologise. To relieve any concerns, can I please confirm right now that I do believe Jesus is the Messiah. (laughs) And wait, there's more. I also believe Jesus is the Son. So um, I think part of the reason for my emphasis yesterday was, uh, I just wanted to make the point that he's actually more than that. And I think part of the confusion arises because some of us think that to be the Messiah somehow means you're God. And I just want to say that's not what Israel expected. There's nothing really in Israel's scriptures that point in that direction, except maybe the Psalm 110, But in Jesus' day, no one was expecting the Messiah to be Yahweh or anything like that, right? Uh, They've looked at David. He's the model of the Messiah. He never does mighty deeds. How many lakes does David walk on? How many blind people does he cure? He doesn't, right? You just don't associate these things with the Messiah. And that's the point I was trying to make here. Uh, The language of being called God's son does not mean someone is God. And that's the reason we spent that time on day two, looking at the fact that Yahweh calls Israel my son. Doesn't mean Israel is God. David is called God's son. Doesn't mean that David's God, right? That's not what that language means. So the reason for spending so much time yesterday talking about what Jesus did, and I'd say, Messiahs don't do this. Prophets don't do this. The reason we know that Jesus is God is because he does the stuff that only Yahweh can do. And that's Paul's point. There is one God and Father and one Yahweh, Jesus Christ. And for Paul, the Yahweh bit comes first. And uh, given, I think, Mark's link with Paul and actually the early church, that's why the front half of Mark is all about Jesus doing Yahweh stuff, not Messiah stuff. Okay? So I'm not saying he isn't the Messiah. I just want to say he is so much more than the merely human Messiah that Israel was expecting. So yes, he is the Messiah, he is the Son of God but before either of those he's actually the Lord and that means he's not just Elohim he's the Yahweh who revealed himself in all that wonderful way during the Exodus Okay, So some of you then were wondering well if Jesus is Yahweh what do you do with the father son bit? And that's a really good question but that's why it's important to pay attention to history if I can put it this way over against theology. Now, you know, I don't mean to get people's backs up on that, but um, the biblical story is much more history than it is abstract philosophical thinking. And that's because Israel only knows God through his revelation in their experience. So how does that begin? Well, in those scriptures, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, formed Israel to be his son And as a special case of that, the Davidic kings. And the reason he called Israel to be his son, Deuteronomy 4, is he wanted them to be an example people. That's what it means for Israel to be God's son, to look like him, to embody his character in the world. It doesn't mean they become God, not at all, but they're meant to reflect his character in the way that they live. They're meant to be a light to the nations. So what's happening there is the creator God becomes father to his creation Israel and the sons of David the Davidic kings so what I'm trying to argue is the father son language has to do with the relationship between the creator and his creation that's what's going on in Israel's scriptures that's where that language first appears now the problem is of course that neither God's son Israel nor his sons the Davidic kings actually end up keeping their end of the bargain they don't look at all like him In fact, they end up worshipping idols, so they get taken off into exile. And then the question is, is that the end? Are we done? Is it over? Well, no, because our God is faithful. What's needed is a true son of God, a true Israel, a faithful Israel who keeps covenant. What's needed is a true Davidic king. There are all these blank checks to do with God's blessing. Where are you going to find a true Israel who can sign off on them? Well, I think what happens is that Yahweh himself finally says, after centuries of human failure, I'm going to come and do this myself. I will be the faithful Israel Israel never was. I will become the faithful Davidic son that no human being could ever be because I want my people to know my blessing of life. And that's why you have the father-son language operating between Jesus. God's a God who keeps his word. He made promises to David. He made promises to Israel. And even if Israel and David can't keep their end of the bargain, God's going to step in and do it himself. Now, I wasn't going to talk about this, but there's a wonderful moment, you know, the story with Abraham, where he's had promise about all these descendants. And then there's that stunning passage or story about the death passage. Do you know this? Where Abraham has to get the animals and cut them in half? That's called a covenant death passage. You slice the animals open and it's not pretty. It's not safer. It's all nicely packaged, right? There's bloody carcasses. And in that moment, a horror of great darkness comes over those carcasses. And in that darkness appears the symbols of God's presence, the smoke and the fire. What does that sound like? The cloud that brought them out of Egypt. And what happens is normally in those arrangements, both parties to the covenant would walk through the passage and they would say, may this happen to me and more also if I break faith with you. But in this moment, and this is stunning, folks, only one walks through that passage and it's not Abraham. Yahweh takes upon himself the burden of keeping that covenant regardless of what Abraham does. Now, you think about that. Where do you see a bloody carcass hanging on a tree in a horror of great darkness at midday? Mm -hmm. You know that moment? Remember that painting of the baptism? Jesus coming up out of the water that we saw recently? It's really important to get this right. Yes, Jesus is the son, but he's also Yahweh on the cross. Keep solidly Trinitarian when you talk about Jesus' death. Not just the Son. This is Yahweh himself. This is the same God who said, you think I'm not the gods of Egypt? I'm going to stand on the rock, whack me, and see what happens. I will do this. Because that's what the name Yahweh means. <laughs> you got that? <laughs> Woo! Well, the Lord is amazing. It's just uh, stunning, stunning stuff. Now, the edgy bit, and there was a bit of an edgy bit, as I've thought about this, it's made me wonder whether actually Father-Son language belongs in the discourse about God. And for those theologians among us who are thinking through these things, uh, that's the bit that I'm just not sure. I think that's maybe where some of the church fathers went a bit astray Because they took father-son language, which has to do with God and his creation, and they swung that up into creative and creator-speaking. And I'm just not sure that belongs. Because when we do that, it creates all kinds of problems, and it made huge problems for the early church when they thought about this, or the post-apostolic church. Sons are always meant to be subordinate to their fathers. So if you put sonship up into who God is, then you've got Jesus who has to be eternally subordinate. And we know that's heretical. That can't be the case. We also know that fathers precede their sons. That was Arius' point of view. If you're going to have a begotten son, there's got to be a time when the son was not. But what if that begotten language was never meant to be up there in the God Yahweh discourse? What if it had anything to do with that, but only between God and his creation? Right? What if that's... What's going on there? right? And that I'm going to take to be a sign of the water of the Holy Spirit saying yes. And if you're just listening to this, folks, we just had a little moment of the glorious liquefied sun of Ireland coming in not far from me. And if I keep this up, I'm going to get drenched. Uh, God will have the final word. So you can see, if Jesus is fully God, how can he be subordinate? How can he be antecedent? Or at least come after God, I should say, right? Well, I think in the end, what I'm really asking for is that we exercise great care when we speculate about the Trinity. And I think at this point, I am standing in a long and solid and great tradition, where many people throughout the history of the church have said, "Be careful. So uh, to quote Paul, I think it's really important that we don't go beyond what's written. And that's why I've tried to focus on the text that we have. Well, I hope that helps. Right? Um, at least the early stuff and this stuff here, you might still think I'm a bit you know, off with the fairies or something worse. But anyway, that's what I'm thinking about. So this morning, well, goodness, I mean, there's so much we could talk about. Where do we begin? We could talk about God as Father. And one of the interesting things you see in the New Testament is whereas Israel's scriptures have a great emphasis on sonship, that shifts and in the New Testament, the focus is much more on God as Father. So we're encouraged by Jesus to actually see God as our Father. Now, bearing in mind, of course, that we have to let the scriptures tell us what Father means. Right? We talked about that um, It's the Scriptures, not our rational or sentimental speculations that tell us what Father means. It's not even our good experiences at home or, even worse, our terrible experiences at home that inform what Father means. And that's why there's so much emphasis on who Yahweh is in Israel's Scriptures. Let those Scriptures tell you who Yahweh is and then that will tell you what Father means. We could do all of that, right? And hence the Lord's Prayer, Our Father... Based on that picture of who Yahweh is, that wonderful God who stands on the rock. His response of mercy and grace at the golden calf. Yes, there are commandments in there, but they're bracketed by those two wonderful moments. Uh, We could talk about the comforter. I'm a Pentecostal, so I could really warm to that. You're probably thinking, no, 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 not here, please, right? Um, And there's lots of wonderful material in John. Uh, Maybe to make you feel a little safer, we could talk about Galatians 5. Phew, breathe a sigh of relief. Okay. Which I think is really about forming Yahweh's character in us. Remember we talked about image. The spirit indwells the image. The image becomes alive and reflects the character of the God. That's what this is about, looking like him. Great stuff there. And of course, the primary command in the New Testament is not try harder. The primary command is to be filled with the spirit. Why? Because it's the spirit that wars against the flesh. So the more you try harder, you're just making it more difficult for yourself because you're making that one thing stronger that doesn't need to be stronger, that is your will. So just just don't do that, okay? Being Christian is not a matter of becoming a stoic and working really hard on your willpower. No, 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 no. It's being filled with the Spirit because it's the Spirit that forms Christ in us. Okay, I think you've met those Christians who are righteous through their will. They're scary, aren't they? kind of terrifying we could say more but um, I won't Uh, we could talk a bit about about how Jesus taught us to pray Um, maybe some of you would like to hear about the logos what about logos Christology and is Jesus wisdom and does he pick up on Proverbs 8 Uh, one word to say about that no I don't think so I think wisdom Christology is a mistake and that's all in the words of Forrest Gump I have to say about that What I'd like to do instead is focus on a passage that I'm sure you know really, really well, so you can keep tabs on me now, make sure I'm doing the right thing, and, you know, just keep keep little notes of where I've wandered off, and you can come back and fix me up later on if you want. Now, you know, there's two chapters here. There's a lot of text, and we didn't have time to read it. That would be wonderful, um, and probably better than listening to me, but uh, I'm up here to do some things, so I should probably just do those things and muddle on. So what I'm going to do is just pick up some salient points from John 13 through 14. Uh, That, for me, captures some of the things we've been trying to talk about over this week. So I'm going to uh, just read part of the introduction of John chapter 13. Now You can either open your Bible if you want to, uh, or you can take notes or try and do both. Uh, It's up to you, but I'll just get on with this, shall I? Now, I'm sure we all know John 13, right? It's Jesus washing his disciples' feet. We've heard that sermon many, many times, and it's wonderful and worthy of all of those sermons. And it's important that we should hear those sermons because it's clearly important for John. Look at the way he builds up to this. Now, it's all one sentence. English can't sustain that length, so English breaks this introduction up into three or four sentences. And we lose the building power of this. But this is what goes on preceding this act. Now, before the festival of the Passover, point one, knowing that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father, loving his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It being supper, Of meal of friendship, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas son of Simon Iscariot to betray him. Knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, finally he gets up from the table. Now that is serious narrative build-up. That's great writing. The whole sequence of things that prepare for this arising. So let's just go back. And of course, what's going to happen now is all of you are going to rush out and learn Greek. Is that right? (laughs) Oh, well. Maybe three? (laughs) Me of little faith. But there are some points to notice here. First of all, what do we begin with? Passover. Passover. Now, you know an awful lot about Passover if you've been here for the last few days. You know what that incredible feast is all about. It's the time where Elohim revealed himself as Yahweh. That's what it has all those resonances. Right? It has to do with Yahweh owning Israel as son and becoming father to them. This is when he revealed his glory. And particularly in the smitten rock and his response to Israel's idolatry with the golden calf. Now, what do we know about Jesus? We already know he's the I am. John's told us that several times. He saw that yesterday. And we go back to the prologue, and he's the one who tabernacled among us. Exodus echoes. And we beheld his glory full of grace and truth. I suspect that's what we should be looking for right now in this climactic Passover. The glory full of grace and truth. What does that look like? Oh, and look, look who's present in this passage. We have Jesus, we have God, we have the Father and the Son, we have Lord and we have Spirit. It's a Trinitarian buffet. (laughs) Wonderful, right? It's all there. Gee, maybe it's a good idea to choose this text after all. It's Passover, but it's also the hour of his departure. Everything in John has been moving toward this point to the point of Jesus' hour. Remember the wedding at Cana. Remember that one, and they've run out of wine. And Mum comes up, and uh, you know, Mum, being Mum, says, "Well, you know, they've run out of wine." And Jesus says, "Really? Huh? My hour has not yet come." You ever thought about that? Like what? So there's no Shiraz. What do you mean your hour hasn't come yet? What's that got to do with anything? Well, of course, you know John's Jesus loves symbolism and imagery. Well, the prophets write poetry all the time, right? And we know what's going on here. He's not thinking of Aussie Shiraz. He's thinking of the great wine, the true wine of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And that's what his hour is going to initiate. Yep, they have run out of wine in more ways than they can imagine. Israel has not had the spirit for a very, very long time. Ever since the prophets have lain down to sleep, as the Maccabees would have it. Which book, by the way, uh, I'd help somebody, is not in the Bible, but it does actually tell you what Jews thought in the first century. So if you're just worried that I didn't distinguish between those two, um, yes, I have. I got a question about that. Sorry, so I'm just responding. That was probably a bit, that was not very nice of me. Sorry, beg your pardon. The hour of his departure would mean the coming of the Spirit. The third thing, loving his own who were in the world. This is the first time we hear explicitly in John that Jesus loved his disciples and we hear it twice. Why? Why? Because Jesus' love for his disciples is about to embody the new commandment that is from this point on to define us. And this is the us who are in the world, in the creation. This is exactly where this kind of love is to be lived out. And it happens during supper. This is a serious meal between friends, it's a sacred friendship. It's the model for what we now celebrate as the Lord's Supper. It's a Passover meal. Remember Passover? It defined Israel. And that's what Jesus is about to do here, to redefine the people of God around this new commandment. And right over against that, this stunning clash of extremes. It's during supper and Satan had already put it into Judah's heart to betray him. And yes, both of those things can go on at the same time. And they happen in our churches. Even as we stretch out our hand for the bread and the wine, it's already in our heart to betray a brother and sister. It's already in our heart to go gossiping about somebody. Lack of forgiveness, resentment, ego stuff. The gospel is nothing if not real. Even in this most holy, sacred moment of redefinition, Satan can put things into our hearts, and some of us go out into the night, having determined to go along with those things. I hope you can see that, folks. There is absolutely no room for bitterness or betrayal or gossip in the kingdom of God. Absolutely no room for that. And we don't give that any space whatsoever. We don't hang on to unforgiveness. There is no room for this. You hear that? And it might just be, folks, the reason why some of our churches have no spiritual authority is because we tolerate this kind of stuff in our own hearts. And we accept it as okay. You just need to know that we are defiling this incredible meal that the Son of God, the Lord himself, gave to us, if that's what we do. Let that not be ever named among us. Then we come to Jesus' own dual motivation, coming to the climax of this introduction. First, knowing that the Father has given all things into his hands. This is why he can still Wash Judas's feet. It's why I can still be friends with people who betray me. Because all things are already ours. What's to be gained by hanging on to that other stuff? All things are ours. Paul talks about that in one of his letters. All things are yours. Why boast? Why have this competition? Why this nonsense that goes on among you? All things are yours in Christ. That kind of takes the pressure off, right? All things. And what we're seeing, I think, in Jesus' washing of his disciples' feet is what it means for all things to be in his hands. He doesn't mind looking weak and foolish because you know what? Actually, all things are his. It's no longer about his ego. He's not having to impress people. He's freed from all of that. All things are his. And how can that be? Because he had come from God and was returning to God. The God-centeredness of all that Jesus is, that's what defines him. Isn't that amazing? The God-centeredness of Jesus, that's what defines him that's where he can do this kind of stuff and he doesn't get fussed right wonderful and what I want to suggest is that his action that's about to come is what defines what God centeredness looks like for us and for him and finally after all of that he rises from the table and you do know don't you that guests don't rise from tables Now, you're going kind to of put this in the setting of the ancient world where when someone's about to die, their last words are really, really important. And that's what we're getting here. Someone in the ancient world reading this document, they know where this is going. They're waiting breathlessly for the final great words of Jesus that just encapsulate everything he is. It's going to repeat, uh, recapitulate all of his teaching, bring it to this fine focal point. And if you've read Mark, you're waiting for the words of institution. This is my body, broken for you. All waiting for that, right? And John doesn't give them to us. What does he give us? An act. Hmm. I think John understands what's going on here. We can say the words of institution until the cows come home. But if we're not living out of this menial servant attitude, it means nothing. Now, ancient Judaism had a lot to say about the need for humility among its teachers. And there are lots of examples of people being humble. But at the same time, there were limits to humility. And that included you had to make sure that the teachers had the chief seats at the tables. <laughs> Ever been to church conferences? <laughs> uh, you know, I um, I don't know, have any, don't really have any experience of yours, but I do know some of the movements back in Australia, and the, it's just interesting to see how, amongst the equality of God's people, the great ones get a special table and a special room with special right and just. And you'll see the great ones moving around and they're followed you know, mother duck by the little ducklings. All that kind of, okay. and, you know, and, and I get, you know, it's good, you know, people should follow me as I imitate Christ, all that kind of thing. But you know, sometimes things do go a bit odd, it seems to me. Right? So you do get gestures of service, they're not uncommon. But this kind of adoption of a slave's role was entirely something else. There are some texts where a Gentile slave in order to demonstrate his subservience to a Jewish master, would do something like this. Now think about that. You couldn't get a Jewish slave to do this, but a Gentile slave you can. Think about that. That's what Jesus is doing. He's behaving like a Gentile slave in the presence of Jewish masters. As far as I know, this act is completely unparalleled by any teacher of antiquity. And it's no wonder that Peter is offended. This is totally unacceptable. It's right outside his mindset. And why? Because he loves Jesus. He honors him. And this is really not what honored teachers ought to do. But Jesus is doing something else here, isn't he? He's showing them, first of all, that his hour, his coming departure, is in fact an act of service for them. And his death is not merely the means by which they can come home to the Father. We're going to talk about that. Right? In my Father's home are many mansions. Chapters 13 and 14 go right together. We're going to get to that point. Okay. But since washing feet is how one greets guests to one's house, right? and since Jesus only does what he sees the Father doing, what we're seeing here is the Father welcoming the disciples into his home. Now, that might be a little more offensive, that God himself would stoop to wash humans' feet. Well, Peter, of course, refuses. He obviously doesn't grasp the implications, and he won't until after Jesus' death, resurrection, And the coming of that Spirit who will lead them into all truth. But Jesus makes the implications pretty clear, it seems to me. You know, Pete, mate, we've been through a lot. Jesus was Australian, in case you didn't know. (laughs) You know, we've been on the road for many years. We've shared rooms, maybe had to bunk together. We've been hungry together. We've shared meals together. We've had the crowds, you've seen the signs from the water turning to wine to the resurrection of Lazarus. We've all gone down and put our lives at risk. We went back into that region. Even so, mate, after all we've been through, if at the end you won't let me wash your feet, we are done. All of that stuff will mean nothing, Pete, and you'll have no part in me. Our friendship is over, unless you let me wash your feet. Kind of stunning, isn't it? And is that a word to us? No matter what we've been through. Right? Imagine being a speaker at a place I don't know. Um, think of New Horizon. Okay. Speaking to a whole bunch of amazingly holy people were very discerning about what Bible teaching they will permit themselves to be, you know, afflicted by or something. Okay, and I get a chance to do this, right? Wow, it's great CV, all of that, and publications, and honors, and awards, and sitting on church boards, all that kind of stuff, and it's great. And even maybe speaking in tongues, perhaps levitating a little bit while I did, right? Um, Casting out a few demons, half raising someone from the dead, maybe not fully, but we're on our way, and. All of that stuff, folks, if it's not embedded in this menial heart of service, is not worth a cracker. And he does not know us. He does not know me. Wow. And, you know, that's a really important lesson for us academics to learn because we are all about, most of us, being great ones. CVs, publications, lists of great things done my goodness. Well, Peter, um, of course, like most of us, immediately reacts oh, 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 okay, no, no, not just my feet, every bit, right? Where's the bath? Let me jump in, okay? And Jesus says, Well, we don't do showers here, Pete, that's okay. Uh, you're already cleansed. You just need to know what that cleansing means for you. This is how it should look. This is John's version, I think, of what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. It's to take up one's wash basin. This is all about what God's laying down his life hospitality looks like for us. And that's why we spent so much time talking about Yahweh standing on the rock. Because that's the kind of God he is. You think I'm like the gods of Egypt? Whack me and see what happens. I will bleed living water for you, even as you kill me. And that, by the way, is what changed the Roman Empire. Didn't have radio stations. Weren't able to marshal huge numbers of people to run political programs. That wasn't even an option in that world. No AK-47s, none of that. But they defeated one of the most powerful empires the world had ever seen. Why? Because they loved not their lives, even unto death. And that's what it means to be washed in the blood of the lamb, by the way. That's not salvation language. That's laying down our lives like Jesus did. And in the end, Rome couldn't compete. And can I suggest that might just be the way the gospel's going to triumph in Ireland. And in our modern world. Sounds counterintuitive, I know certainly was for these guys. But we have something they don't. We can look back on the resurrection. We can look back on a Roman Empire that in the end gave way before the gospel. So Jesus explains to them, I have done this as your teacher and your Lord. It's the only time in John that we find these two words together, teacher and Lord. And of course, You know, been reading John carefully. You're thinking, Lord, yeah, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, Lord, all right. Right? The one who does what only Yahweh can do. And we don't just find them for the first time. We get them together twice. You think he's trying to tell us something? He's wanting to tell us how critically important this is. There is no room among us for great ones who strut their stuff. No room. There is no room for academics like me who think, because I have some letters after my name that I'm better than you are. No room for that. There's no room for any kind of boasting or superiority among this people. There's no room for elders or congregations throwing their weight around. It's my church. Oh, really? Well, let's crucify you. And if you come back, we'll believe you. If not, good riddance we know whose church this is he gave himself for it and God vindicated him by bringing him back from the dead, it is never our church folks it's his it's his and now we're seeing what he's like you know the biggest danger for people like me, I was born with a big mouth, it's not just putting one foot in I can put ten in if I had them right (laughs) and what do I do People like me always have opinions. Oh, yes, we do. And they're right ones. (laughs) And we're always going to be blessing others with our great wisdom. Give us a mic or not. Give us a congregation of a thousand or just one and I'm off. I had to think about that, though. How is that washing people's feet? Hmm? Maybe an act of my washing someone's feet is to listen. To give them space maybe lord have mercy this is also the only time in john we meet the word apostle and we're told apostles are not greater than those who sent them and we remember mark again we remember that jesus called 12 to be with him and to be sent out why do you think this is here why do you think john has recounted this at this point Because as Jesus sent ones, as his apostles, this above all else is what they are to model. This is what Paul's doing in Philippians 2. Even though being in the form of God, and I don't think that's platonic, that word is simply garden variety stuff you can touch. So I think Paul is saying this, even though Jesus was the physical manifestation of Yahweh upon the earth, and you know that, we talked about that yesterday. Even though he could do all that Yahweh stuff, he did not grasp his equality with God. He never did that. I'm your Bible teacher. I'm your pastor. I'm your elder. Not so Jesus. But being found in human form. And notice that. There's those two things. The incarnation, human form, and God among us. Tied together. Beautiful. Beautiful. What did he do? He humbled himself, becoming a servant, even to death on a cross. That's exactly what John's talking about here. That's what I love about Paul, actually. He says, guys, if you want to make my joy complete, let this mind be among you. And can I suggest, folks, if you really want to see this country awash with the gospel and life of Jesus, this is the path to go. This is the way to do it. Well, that is if we trust Jesus. This is also the first time we meet the word blessed. Sermon on the Mount has nine in Matthew. John, just the one and just here. And he says, Jesus says to them, Blessed are you if you understand and know these things. Now, remember all the Trinitarian language? Jesus is not talking about the mechanics of how Jesus can have two natures. He's not talking about the mechanics of how you can have three in one. That's not what's of interest to him here. It's not the mechanics that matter. It's the character of Yahweh that matters. How we live this out. Now, all of this sets the scene for Jesus' announcement of his coming betrayal given all that's happened he's just washed their feet the shockwaves that that's caused and Judas goes out having taken the bread having shared the meal he goes out into the night and yet for Jesus does he get upset? no this is the moment of his glorification this is the moment where the light of the world shows that the darkness does not get it and therefore cannot overcome it because this light doesn't play the game of darkness and he announces his departure little children I'm with you only a little longer you will look for me and as I said to the Jews so now I say to you where I'm going you cannot come so I give you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you you should also love one another by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Now, we know this really well. But think about this in terms of Passover. At Passover, Israel received what? The Ten Commandments. That defined them. And when Israel remembered Passover, they recalled the Exodus and these events. But this is our, now our new commandment. This is the one that trumps all of those. I'm not interested in the Ten Commandments if this one is not the one that trumps them all. And neither is the watching pagan world. Because they can tell when we use rules to control people and not to bring them life. They can tell really, really quickly. They can tell when we use rules in order to buttress our own superiority. They can tell that very, very quickly. But this is our new commandment. That we love one another. That's wonderful, isn't it? All you need is love. Da-na-na-na. All you need is love, right? That kind of thing. Even a little bit of Pentecostal dancing there. Oh, amazing. Incredible what you get when you come to one of these things, right? You might want to give some of it back, I guess. <laughs> but notice that's not what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't say, love one another. What he says is what? Love one another as I have loved you. He defines what love means, not us. You'll sometimes hear that one. Well, if you love me, you'll let me do whatever I want, or that. No, 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 no. It's amazing how we can manipulate even love to our own ends. That awful turned inward idolatry that poisons every relationship it touches. No, no, no. We don't start with ourselves, and we are not the measure of what love looks like. It's not about my putting my, me putting my expectations on you. No. This is not an arrogant, self-assertive, autonomous love that demands others serve it. That's not love. The love that we're meant to have is as I have loved you. This love is rooted in Jesus' name and that's why actually it causes offense. But it's also the only reason it changes the world. Well, that's amazing stuff. But the news of Jesus' soon departure coming hard on the heels of his betrayal kind of overwhelms this new commandment. And you get Peter saying, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus says to him, Peter, you cannot follow now, but later you will. Well, Lord, why can't I follow you? I will lay down my life for you, he says. And I believe him. I have no doubt that he really meant this. I would in that situation and we understand that don't we all of us in our heart of hearts in our better selves echo yep me too I'll do that don't we I mean don't we sing exactly these kinds of words every time we gather together to worship don't we sing exactly this sure we do we have a room full of Peters and what Petrinas or something right right here and now hundreds of them saying yes with Peter right and what's Jesus response really Well, actually, no, you won't. You're going to betray me before morning. I mean, that quickly, not even 24 hours. You want to talk about awkward? (laughs) That must have stung. In front of all his friends, he's the leader of the group. He's mentioned first in every list. What colour must his face have gone? That kind of trapped look, glancing left and right, beads of perspiration the confusion he's just declared his intention and no doubt at all just like all of us he really meant it but you see this is where our chapter divisions really let us down so you're having your quiet time righteously the Lord loves you and you've come to the end of chapter 13 so you close your Bible your quiet time comes to an end on this glorious note and off you go to have a brilliant day bringing the life of Jesus to the world. <laughs> but you know what? That's exactly what we should do. And why? Because there is no chapter division. What well, does Jesus go on immediately to say? But guys, Peter, all you Petrinas, don't let your hearts be troubled. i tell you why. Because this whole thing was never about you in the first place. <laughs> don't you remember the Exodus? Was it you who got that going? Don't you remember? I am who I am. I am the Lord. I have seen the suffering of my people. I have heard their cry. I will free you. I will redeem you. I will take you. I will be your God. I will bring you to the land. I will give it to you. I am Yahweh. Right? Right? Oh, that is just stunning. Yes, guys, we will betray him. In all kinds of ways, that's going to happen. But good friends, get over yourselves. This is not actually about you. It's not about me and my strength and my commitment, my brilliant books, my speaking, any of that kind of stuff. And it never was, Jesus says. This is all about me. It's what I do. You do know Yahweh, don't you? Peter, you're not going to lay down your life for me. Well, yes, you will later on, but that's not what this is about. Laying down my life is what I do. And when it does finally get going, it's still going to be about me and my father in you from beginning to end. It's the spirit that wars against the flesh. And this is, I think, going to get really amazing stuff. How am I going? Oop, five minutes. No, we might just make it. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, and see what happens. Okay. Notice immediately after that comes what I think are two summons. Believe in God and believe in me, he says. And what does that mean? Well, in my Father's house are many dwellings, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'll come back and take you to myself. Now, what's he referring to? Well, we all know. Heaven, right? Eh, Really? Where in these chapters does John ever talk about heaven? In fact, where in the Gospel of John does he ever talk about heaven? What about that language, take you to myself? Surely that's the rapture or something, you know. Um, Well, nice try, but no cigar. That word, take you to myself, is the same word that's used when Joseph takes Mary to his house. It's a marriage metaphor. Oh, and we remember in Mark's Gospel, Jesus is the bridegroom. and what's the whole point of this so that where I am you may be also it's all about the presence and then we remember that's exactly what the exodus is about the presence of Yahweh dwelling among his people without that presence they're nothing Moses says that you're going to give us take us to the lamb without you no deal without your presence it's nothing so what does Jesus go on to speak about well how do we get there Thomas has a question well you know What's the way? And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. That's Exodus language. But through me. Right? No one gets to know Elohim as Father apart from who Jesus is. Right? And that's exactly what John's prologue told us. And to those who believed in him, that is the one who tabernacled among them, he gave them authority to become. Children of God. That's the Exodus moment. God takes Israel to be his son and he their father. Philip's pretty impressed by this. This is great. Okay, wonderful. Good. Show us the father. And Jesus says, are you kidding? Well, not quite, but have I been with you all this time, Philip, and still you do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So those people are right who say, if you want to know what God looks like as Father, look at Jesus. That's what he looks like, this Jesus. And what has he just done? He's washed their feet. That's what the Father looks like. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me, I am in the Father and the Father is in me, but if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. And that's what we did yesterday. We went through all those works that demonstrate it's not just Jesus. This is Yahweh in him. Believe him, at least for those reasons. Now remember, still keep in mind, we're talking about, well, how do we find out where the Father's house is? How do we get there? And what does Jesus talk about? Exactly that. If you love me, the Father will give you the comforter. That's the Spirit. And then finally, those who love me will keep my word. And I actually think that's a promise. I think that's the consequence. Love God and you will end up looking like him. That's a promise. It's not a condition. It's a promise. Love God and watch your life change. Love God and watch the Spirit do what the Spirit does best. Form Yahweh in us. And my Father will love them. And here it is. We will come to them and make our home. With them. Got that stunning. We will come and we will make our home with them. What is this father's house of which Jesus speaks? Now the word here is really fascinating. Another reason to learn Greek. And I have no Greek tapes on sale, so I'm not into it for the money, right? The word here is not the usual word for house, oikos, right? It's a different word, it's the word mona. And that emphasis is on the place where someone stays and kind of has their being. And as you read that, you think, I've seen this before. In fact, way back at the beginning of John's gospel, the first question the disciples ask Jesus is, Master, where do you live? And they use the word meno, the verb that's based on this particular noun. Where do you have your being? And Jesus says, come and see. And here we've come all the way through John's gospel. And now we see. At this last meal, this powerful demonstration of what the love of God looks like. This menial servant love. We finally learn we're not just Jesus, but also the father abides in us. You are the house he departed to prepare. That's what his death is all about. His death dealt with our sin so that we now can become the temples of God who dwells in us, father and son, through the Holy Spirit that's what the Trinity is about folks not mechanics but God in us transforming life giving we become his very temple that's why there are many mansions I'm looking at a couple of hundred of them right now and remember it's not because you haven't betrayed him or you might not again because it was never about us in the first place get that That takes off an awful lot of pressure and opens up a whole new way of talking about a love that imitates Jesus. Well, my five minutes extra has gone. So I'm just going to finish with one story if I might. A friend of mine teaches theology at a famous English or Scottish university and he was chatting with Rabbi Jonathan Sachs And uh, Rabbi Sachs said to uh, my friend, Steve, he said, Steve, so what are you Christian theologians doing? Oh, we're all talking about how the Trinity works and imminence and impassibility and how we can be God-man, all that kind of stuff, and da-da-da, and, you know, Rabbi Sachs says, oh, yeah, that's really great. He said, you know, that's the kind of stuff you Christians do. Um, We tend to focus on ethics. Now, I don't actually like that word because I don't think it's Christian, personally. Uh, That comes from Aristotle, and we're not followers of Aristotle. But I think Rabbi Sachs got it because he understands that the God of Israel is not that fast that we learn how it all works. He's much more fast about how we live. Father, we do thank you for the great, great thing you've shown us, this great love, this mercy in Jesus, whose departure has prepared the way for the coming of the Comforter, who now dwells within us, And through him, the Father and the Son, we at last can say from the bottom of our hearts, Abba, and know that it's true. Help us to live in the truth of this, we pray, in Jesus' strong, strong name, who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen? Amen. Amen.